Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Remember how President Trump described the Constitution's emoluments clauses in October? I don't think uh, you people with this phony emoluments clause, and by the way, uh, I would say that it's cost me anywhere from 2 to $5 billion to be president. Well, during arguments last Thursday before a 15-judge appellate panel in Richmond, Virginia, a Justice Department lawyer, Hashim Mupan, tried to walk that comment back when Judge Robert King put him on the spot. He characterizes them as phony emoluments clauses. Now, what's the irrelevancy of that? Your Honor, I think any fair characterization of what he said is he's calling the claims here phony. He's not disputing the existence of the emoluments clauses. He's called them phony emoluments clauses. I understand, Your Honor, and it was either a tweet or an off-the-cuff statement. And they are two, two clauses of the Constitution written in 1787. An on-bank panel of the Fourth Circuit was considering one of three lawsuits accusing Trump of flouting the Constitution's emoluments clauses. This lawsuit by the Attorneys General of Maryland and D.C. Joining me is Josh Blackman, a professor of constitutional law at the South Texas College of Law. Josh, is there a precedent here or is this completely uncharted territory? Well, until 2017, there have been zero litigation over both the foreign and domestic emoluments clause. These, these are fairly obscure provisions of the Constitution that were never, ever litigated, and there's really not much precedent on them. In the Fourth Circuit case, a three-judge panel had thrown the case out and ruled in favor of President Trump. And then the entire circuit, an en banc panel, heard the case. How unusual is it to have an en banc panel in the Fourth Circuit? It's fairly rare for the Court of Appeals to hear cases en banc. If I had to guess, maybe 10 to 20 cases a year out of hundreds ever make it to the full court. But the the Fourth Circuit heard en banc on a fairly narrow and really not a very sexy issue. It wasn't en banc hearing for whether uh, the president was violating the Constitution. The question there concerned what happens when the district court screws up? In this case, the lower court declined to allow an appeal in the middle of the case. And what happens when the district court does not allow an appeal? Well, the Court of Appeals said, well, too bad. We don't care. We're going to dismiss the case outright. And that probably wasn't the right path. I think the Fourth Circuit will say that when a district court won't allow an appeal, you have to let the case go through its natural conclusion before you can uh, take it to the Court of Appeals. You can't do this sort of stopgap appeal in the middle. I think that's probably what the court will hold here. But the judges did discuss the standing issue, whether the D.C. and Maryland AGs had standing to bring the suit. That's right. The basis of these suits is actually fairly business-related. In Maryland, the Maryland government owns a hotel, the Bethesda Marriott. And in D.C., the D.C. government owns the D.C. Convention Center. And these businesses are competing, in theory at least, with Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. And these businesses have said that they are at an unfair competitive advantage because they can't offer foreign guests this sort of um, benefit of staying in the president's hotel. That's that certain perk that they can't hand out. And they've argued because they're being injured competitively, they can go to federal court to seek a remedy for their injury, which in this case would be telling the president to stop accepting these sorts of foreign payments. 
There were three hours of arguments, and yep. they seemed really spirited, sharp questions, challenging the attorneys on many different points. Judge Harvey Wilkinson dominated the questioning. We're up here making it up. We're winging it. There's no history that authorizes it. There's no precedent that authorizes it. There's no right conferred that authorizes it. This one's a lemon. It's, it's the weakest of the cases that are springing up like Jimson weed against the presidency in this environment. Well, I was in the court in Richmond for nearly three hours. It felt like a lot longer for the arguments. Judge Wilkinson is fairly conservative in the old school sense. He does not believe that the court should inject themselves into these fairly aggressive sorts of cases. There's no experience, there's no history, there's no tradition of the court telling the president what kind of payments he can accept. This was usually something worked out between the branches. And I think Judge Wilkinson was worried about what happens if the courts take up this novel claim and inject themselves in what could very well be an impeachable offense. I think Wilkinson would say this is not for the courts to decide, this is for the political branches to handle. The Justice Department lawyers ended up explaining away a comment that President Trump made about the emoluments clause as phony. How did that come across in the courtroom? Well, look, President Trump makes his lawyers have a very hard job because he says and tweets all this really dumb stuff. So at one point, Trump stated or maybe tweeted, you know, that we have this phony emoluments clause, right? And the judge asked, well, well, the president thinks these emoluments clauses are phony. And the lawyer said that he wasn't saying that the clauses were phony. He was referring to the litigation, the cases, uh, which I think is probably a plausible reading of the president's tweets. But frankly, they're irrelevant. I don't think it really matters to the courts whether the president thinks these clauses are phony or not. The, the issue is fairly narrow that the courts are here to decide. I think a lot of these judges are more interested in getting sound bites than they are in just in actually making legal arguments. Did it seem as if one side was going to win the argument? Did it seem fairly divided, or you just can't tell? Oh, I think Trump's going to lose. This is a court where I think the majority of the judges are willing to say that the president's appeal was not proper. Now, let's just be very careful here. I don't think the court here will hold that the president is violating the Constitution. I think they'll he'll hold more narrowly that unless the district judge, the trial judge, allows the appeal to proceed, then the appellate court has no authority to act, that you need to wait for the district court to act first. And I think that that's where they're going to wind up. Can you explain why the district court decided that there was no appeal possible? Well, generally, you can take an appeal after a judge makes a final ruling. For example, they dismiss a case, you can appeal that. Here, the judge did something separately. He declined to dismiss the case. He said, I want the case to go forward. And generally, you can't appeal a denial of a dismissal. You can't appeal it where you don't have a final decision. And the government said, come on, this is the president of the United States. Can't you let us take an early appeal? And the judge said, no, I don't think this case warrants it. You know, I think my opinion is reasonable. People aren't going to disagree with me. Let's proceed. And I think that was almost certainly an error. But what happens when this judge makes a mistake? Can the appellate court basically say, no, 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 you're wrong? And there's some good authority to say that, no, that when you have this sort of intransigent district court judge, you're sort of stuck with it. Now, I'll just put disclosure that I filed amicus briefs in support of the president in, in all, all these cases, or one in Maryland, one in New York, and one in D.C. So I do have a bit of a dog in the fight. But I think the district court judge here behaved improperly. What was the three-judge panel's ruling then? The three-judge panel, remarkably, actually not only took the case away from the district court, 
they dismissed it outright. They didn't even send it back for further consideration. They said, too bad, you screwed up, this case is over, which I think was, was probably not the strongest holding. This case has a lot of bizarre angles. Tell me why you filed amicus briefs in all these cases. I filed them because I'm a glutton for punishment. No, um, <laughs> our position uh, is a little bit obscure. I represent Professor Stephen Barrett-Tillman, who is a constitutional law professor in Ireland. And for many years, Professor Tillman has studied the Constitution's text very carefully. And our theory, and this theory predates Trump, but our theory is that the Constitution uses the phrase office and officer to refer to appointed positions, not elected positions. And they say, Josh, who cares? Well, if you look at the text of the Foreign Emoluments Clause, it applies to those who hold office under the United States. We think this language refers to people who are appointed by the government. That is, you know, the secretary of state or a judge of the federal courts, right? We don't think that this language applies to elected positions. If we're right, then the Foreign Emoluments Clause simply doesn't limit the president's actions. I can see this is some of an unorthodox position, and so far the courts haven't accepted it. Indeed, the judges have mostly rejected our position. But we still think we have a argument to make, and we keep making it, and any court don't listen to us. <laughs> so a second emoluments case filed by 215 Democratic members of Congress is before the federal appeals court in D.C. Any idea how that court might rule? Well, the D.C. Circuit case, June, is really different, and let me explain to you why. Here you had 200 members of Congress sue, and they argued that the president was violating the Constitution. This wasn't the House representative suing or the Senate. These were individual members. And there's, a, I think, a pretty good argument that individual members of Congress can't go to court to sue, right? That's not what they're there for. They can sue perhaps as a body, or maybe as a whole Congress, but they can't sue individually. So I think the D.C. case we've thrown out because the members of Congress won't have what's called standing. What about the third case at the Second Circuit? In September, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan ruled that a restaurant group had standing to sue Trump. The Second Circuit's in a different position. The Second Circuit case was brought by business owners in New York who owned hotels and restaurants. And they claimed that they were competing against Trump Tower Hotel in uh, Midtown. The, the district court in that case actually dismissed the case outright. But then the Second Circuit Court Appeals, a three-judge panel, reversed and held that the case was proper. The government filed a petition for a hearing on bonk, that is, for hearing before the entire court. That motion has been pending now for a couple months, and we've not heard anything. So we're in a weird spot where the Second Circuit hasn't signaled one way or the other what they're going to do. The Second Circuit historically hears very few cases on bonk. So if the president loses that case, it very likely goes to the Supreme Court. I think actually the Maryland case and the New York case are very likely to get to the Supreme Court in the next year or so. Thanks, Josh. That's Josh Blackman, a professor of constitutional law at the South Texas College of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.